Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Romans as we continue our series of messages through this great epistle. By the way, uh, when I use the term epistle, an epistle is not an apostle's wife. (laughs) An epistle is a letter. And... uh, I think so at uh, times past. I've even been asked that question before. I won't say where. Because people I know from all over listen to this uh, uh, Facebook uh, posting of the sermons. And I have to be careful now. I've I've realized that I can no longer use names. Uh, Especially if I'm not saying something real building up. Which probably means I don't need to say it, right? So... With that said, let's get it right to uh, Romans chapter 1. We're going through the official uh, literary analysis of the greeting of Paul to this church at Rome. And let me just say this uh, over the top. Paul has a a strong gospel paradigm. He, He has an obsession with the gospel. And in the first 17 verses of Romans, there is more mention of the concept, word, or words equivalent to the gospel more than in any other place in the Bible. Uh, And the reason why Paul is obsessed with the gospel is he himself had experienced its life-transforming power. And he saw all of life through the lenses of the gospel. The gospel became for him uh, his interpretive grid regarding every situation. And so, with that said, let's plunge right in. We're beginning in verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. First. Now, you'll notice that Paul says first here, and he never says second. That's like preachers, but he means first. It's more like saying, this is what I'm about to say to you to get your attention. It's not so much numerical here. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today for help in understanding your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. 
Your word goes, that goes forth from your mouth never returns to you void or empty, but accomplishes your purposes wherever it goes. It brings forth fruitfulness. It creates what it calls for. And we pray that your word, wielded by your spirit, will accomplish much in all of us today. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Paul here in this greeting, probably more than anywhere else, by the way, in all of his letters, he has a greeting, but in this letter, the greeting is a little different because Paul had never been to Rome. Paul was not responsible for this church coming into existence. It was not his foundation here he was building upon, and so he spends a great deal of time in this greeting explaining why he hasn't already visited them. Now, if you're a thinking person and you're a person who's at all sensitive, I think you would appreciate the fact that Paul is trying to build a rapport with this church he's never visited. And so Paul uh, underscores how they all belong to the worldwide community of faith. He informs them of their constant place in all of his prayers. And he highlights the mutuality of their faith. Paul is being highly relational here, highly pastoral. Because Paul understands one thing. People do not care how much you know if they do not know you really care. And Paul is establishing here that you people here in Rome are on my heart. He, he, as we get into the greeting more so, you're going to see how passionate he is about accomplishing that. And so he uh, sets up uh, dramatically uh, his primary thesis about the gospel, which will under, undergird everything uh, he has to say. Uh, in the, this particular book. Um, that is, everything he says about this in this letter about sin, salvation, transformation, Torah, or the law of God, hope, Israel, ethics, mission, and community are all built upon the foundation of his gospel. Now, I wonder, this is not clearly said anywhere, but I wonder if Paul, as he wrote to the Galatians, was so astonished, so absolutely floored that they had lost the gospel so quickly and were turning to another gospel, perhaps Paul's passion to get to Rome is to find out exactly what these people were embracing as the gospel. Because the gospel is something that can be lost rather quickly. It's so counterintuitive to our nature. It's so different than the way we naturally think that Paul's passion to get there is to be sure to at least understand their understanding of the gospel and all its implications for life. And Paul calls his gospel, by the way, my gospel. It was something revealed to him by God. The book of Galatians talks about how he received it not from men or not from Jerusalem or not from other apostles, but rather God revealed it to him. And his passion was to arrive there. I cannot stress enough how much Paul stresses the theme of the gospel that he began with in verses 2 through 4 throughout the rest of this particular letter. And so his concern here 
is to visit, but since he can't visit at that moment, he sends the next best thing. Uh, he sends his whole theology of the gospel in this particular letter. Uh, he noted that uh, the gospel had penetrated into the eastern part of the Roman Empire and it is creating Christ-shaped communities all over the place. The very one he is now addressing. The gospel is the divine power unleashed to save Jews and Greeks. The gospel unveils divine righteousness to judge as well as to justify. The gospel is a message from God about God and it invades the world in its proclamation and creates new people by creating faith in those who hear it. J. Gresham Machen said in his book Christianity and Liberalism, which I would recommend just as relevant today as it was the day he wrote it, I think back in the 40s, and he simply said this, it is one of the most astounding and amazing things in the whole world that simply by telling people a story about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, it changes their lives forever. Isn't that astounding? A story. But the story is a unique story and a powerful story about the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the gospel itself has become an instrument of God's saving activity, an action that drives preaching and praying and praxis or lifestyle. In these brief words, Paul is beginning to invite his readers to identify with the message and to share in the promotion of his particular apostolic mission to take the gospel to places it had never been before. The wonderful power of the gospel is this. It creates in us what it calls for from us. The gospel creates faith. What is called for us in response to the message of gospel? Faith and repentance. The very word and power of the gospel brought home to our hearts by the powerful application of the Holy Spirit creates the very thing God calls for from us, which is the gift of both faith and repentance, our responsibility to turn away from our sin turn away from our self-salvation strategies, turn away from our own righteousness, and turn to Christ himself and to receive from him his gift of righteousness and forgiveness. The gospel power, that's the power. We'll talk about that more next week. But it creates what it calls for. It, 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 Paul tells us later in this same book in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. People have spiritual death. Everybody is born physically alive, but spiritually dead. What is it that God uses to quicken us? What is it that God uses to build faith in us? What is it that God uses to create a desire to repent in us? It is the powerful message of the gospel. Are you tired yet of hearing me say that? You're going to be hearing it. Because it is saturated in this book. That's why it's important for you when you're sharing your faith. Yes, a testimony can be effective. And there's nothing wrong with using a testimony. But to try to get across to people the powerful message of the gospel. I have to tell you, the more and more I talk to people, 
especially this past week, you know my major field of ministry and operation outside of the church is at the gym. And I'm about ready to set up a shop there that says, Chaplain Posey, please come in and talk to me. I talk to people about the gospel all the time, and they look at me like I'm from outer space. Well, no, I'm not a very religious person. Good, I say. Jesus doesn't like religious people. Oh, if you knew how bad I was. I said there's more forgiveness in one drop of the blood of Christ than in an ocean of your sin. And so it's a wonderful message to share with people. It is so filled with hope, and it's powerful. And so the backstory here, or background story, is that Paul sees himself as playing a key role in God's plan to extend his salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah, in chapter 6, 66, verses 19 through 20, says the very same thing, that the gospel would go as far as Greece and Libya and Spain. In a similar way, Paul envisioned his apostolic ministry as taking shape of an ark that went from Jerusalem to northern Greece to Rome and to Spain. That was the known world he's speaking of at this moment. And then who knows, maybe back along the North African coast and finally to Egypt and then back home to Jerusalem. So just as the Psalter encouraged God's people to sing praises, uh, uh, not only for uh, the people of God themselves, but for the nations, so too. That has always been God's heart, by the way. God's heart has always been toward the nations, not just toward the Jews. The Jews, Israel, was chosen by God, selected by God, um, adopted by God as uh, sons and daughters of his for the purpose of bringing the light of the gospel and the glory of God to the nations. Never were they to separate in such a way, now there, there was more separation in the old covenant than the new, but never were they to separate themselves from having any kind of impact on the nations around him, the, uh, them. The gospel is international in its scope. It is multi-ethnic in its scope. One of the beautiful things I enjoy about this church is not everybody looks like me. Not everybody comes from the place I come from. Uh, we have people from all over the world here. And to me, that is a beautiful picture of Paul's heart and desire here. Now, one last thing. Uh, do you ever doubt? Do you have, ever have doubts about your faith? You entertain doubts about whether or not this is all true or this is some story somebody made up to manipulate you and get your money. Do you ever have doubts and fears like that? The worst thing you can do if you have that problem, and that's not unusual and many people do, the worst thing you can do is absent yourself from the preaching of God's word. That's the dumbest thing you can do. It's just ridiculous because faith is the opposite of doubt and the opposite of self-reliance. And you can't doubt anything without faith in something else. And so when the gospel message is preached, it overpowers even our doubts and fears. And so Paul's introductory remarks go as follows. First, thanksgiving for the Roman believers 
He spells out his affection for the Roman believers combined with an explanation as to why he hasn't been there for and then sort of a summation of his convictions that we won't get today, verses 16 through 17. So we're looking at Paul's thanksgiving, Paul's vow, Paul's longing, and Paul's debt. So let's move through this. Paul begins to narrate the circumstances that led him to write this particular letter. He explains in particular why, if he is the apostle to the Gentiles, he has not visited the Roman Christians earlier. I mean, Rome is the capital of that known world. Rome is a teeming city. Population-wise, think of places like Bombay or Calcutta. It's just teeming with all kinds of humanity, all in one place. And it would seem that if, if on the Damascus Road, Paul was set apart to the gospel for the Gentiles, why have you not come to Rome? What's the deal with this? Let's wake up. And consider this, why have you not already come? His, uh, so what he does here is he first begins with thanksgiving for his audi uh, audience, nominating it as the first thing he wants to mention uh, to the course of cultivating a relationship with the Roman believers. Such a thanksgiving reflects the typical nature of the early church's worship being directed as it was to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to worship, we come to bring worship, we worship God the Father through the mediatorial work and role of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God and the goodness of our own hearts or the blessing of our own hearts. That's the order, and Paul gives that to them in speaking to them. It was to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Reverence for Jesus is made with reference to the one God who indicates that Jesus shares in the divine identity. The occasion for Paul's thanksgiving is because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, that doesn't mean every creature in existence on the globe. This is a little bit of hyperbole. This is a little bit of the Greco-Roman world was more focused about it. But Paul mentions how everyone has heard about their faith. And if they have real faith, then that faith is manifesting itself and showing itself in practical day-to-day -day life through obedience. In other words, these are a unique group of people whose lives are being transformed and changed by the resurrected living Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's going on. And so Paul gives thanks for that. Why does Paul thank God for their faith resounding throughout the world? Well, here I'm going to share something with you. You may not know or you may know this. It isn't your faith alone that saves you, but rather... Christ saves you through faith, and that faith that is brought to bear upon the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gift of God. Why are you a Christian and your next-door neighbor is not? Why are you a Christian and other members of your family are not? Why are you a Christian 
and your coworkers are not, or your other students at school are not, or people in your classes are not, or people in your neighborhood are not, but you are. Why, why, why? Is it because you're smarter? Is it because you're more holy? Is it because you're more intelligent? Is it because you're just a better person than them? No, 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 no. It is the gift of God. Why do you believe in someone else doesn't? God's sovereign grace and gift. And so Paul begins this letter by saying, we have no one to thank in the universe for even being people who live and exercise faith other than the very gift of God himself. And that is, becomes very important as we continue down this particular text because he starts talking about taking the gospel to the barbarians. And the barbarians were the kind of people you wanted to hold your nose. You did not want to be around the barbarians. They couldn't even talk right. By the way, barbarian is an onomatopoeia word. You know what that is? Sounds like what it means what it sounds like. Bar, 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 bar. In other words, these are rednecks, but worse than rednecks. <laughs> I, you know what I found out? Now, I, I grew up in Redneck, USA. I understand that. I've got papers. I've been registered. <laughs> I've overcome it to some degree. But there are rednecks everywhere you go. They just call them different things. The barbarians were worse than the rednecks. They were worse than as much as some of you hate liberals. <laughs> but the barbarians were low. And Paul is trying to explain to his people off the bat, the only reason you're not a barbarian and the only reason you are connected to me and my gospel is the grace of God. You are not superior. You are not better. You're not. Well, I kind of ran that one a little ahead. Uh, I was saving that for the end. But uh, somebody must have needed to hear it. Maybe they got to get up and go. Uh, the occasion for Paul's thanksgiving is the faith. And um, the first Christians did not, despite all of their diversity, see themselves as an isolated, introspective congregation, each keeping to their own. On the contrary... They were believers who traveled widely, visiting each other among that known world, the Roman Empire, whereas Paul wrote Romans from the environment of Corinth around A.D. 56-57. Some three decades later, a senior presbyter in Rome named Clement wrote to the Corinthians using what pastoral clout he had to try to solve some of the problems there. So there was a connectedness there was a community of the faith. But the elephant in the room, and this is the opening quote, the elephant in the room, so to speak, is that Paul needs to address his absence from Rome. If he is the divinely appointed apostle to the Gentiles, then why has he not yet visited the largest Gentile city in the inhabited world? Why has Paul not attempted to correspond with the Roman Gentile believers resident there? And Paul alleges under the jurisdiction of his apostolate. It would be like being, let's, let's pick another denomination other than ours so we can feel better. It would be like 
someone claiming to be the Anglican Archbishop of California, but failing to visit Anglican churches in Los Angeles after 20 years on the job. People might ask, who is this guy named Paul? What is his deal? What has he got to do with us? Is he somebody... If he is somebody, then why hasn't he visited us? Moreover, with Paul's reputation being what it was, he might not have been welcomed by some folks because of his controversial views, let's say, about the Torah and its place in the life of a believer. Whatever the Roman be uh, believers had heard of about Paul, Luke makes it clear that by the time Paul finally does get to Rome, uh, the believers there were grateful and, and encouraged by his arrival. So he's sort of mending fences, as it were. Uh, you can imagine there's nothing worse than silence. Because silence leaves you open to what? To interpret things in the worst possible way. Somebody doesn't speak to you for two or three weeks, who used to speak to you every day, it will eventually walk across your mind that maybe they're mad about something. Or maybe they're offended. Or maybe I have something I did I'm not even aware of. Or maybe they're in a crisis. Or maybe they need some help. And so it's only natural for people to feel that way. But Paul goes to great lengths here as we continue to show them that is not the case. Now Paul could have said, well, let me just tell you. I'll tell you where I've been. I've been getting beat to a pulp. <laughs> I've been preaching all over uh, the Acts, the book of Acts gives us the journeys of Paul in his missionary situations and lots of bad stuff has happened to this man. Uh, he has been hammered and pummeled and rejected and run out of town and mocked and laughed at and scorned besides dealing with all the problems in the churches like Corinth and Galatians and Colossae and the Thessalonican church. And so Paul has been uh, putting fires out all over the known world and there's a good reason why he hadn't been there. But Paul doesn't do that because he's not like me. He's mature. So he says this. Paul endeavors in a number of ways to assuage any ambiguous feelings they might have about his ministry or motive. First, Paul stresses that even while he's engaged in preaching the gospel, God can testify as a witness to how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. Paul routinely reminded his audiences in different locations of the constancy of his prayer for them and how he regularly made petition for their growth. Think of Ephesus, think of Thessalonica, think of Philippi, think of Ephesus, think of Colossae. Think of Philemon. They're all over the place. Philippi. And so these prayers are windows into the Christ-centered devotion and pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul. He's a model for our own prayers if there ever was one. But while Paul was away, he had spent time doing the most valuable thing he could do for those churches, and that is pray for them. Secondly, Paul said he specifically prays for the opportunity to visit Rome and then explains why he has not visited them to date. Paul's prayer for the Romans is that hopefully by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. What Paul means is that visiting Rome is at the very top of his personal missional agenda. 
Related to that, Paul explains in verse 13 that he has previously planned to visit them, but has been prevented from doing so up until now. And when Paul states, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, he has in mind something like, don't, do not get the wrong impression about me. Paul uses the expression often in his letters for getting the right perspective on contentious matters. The reason why Paul has not yet visited this church is uh, not because of disinterest. Rather, he has been prevented from doing so. Verse 13. Paul mentions that these hindrances, what these hindrances are at the end of the letter. By the way, this uh, introduction, greeting, and passage of thanksgiving is mirrored in chapter 15 and in chapter 16 of Romans. You can get a lot more information about what he's referring to in these verses from those verses. And we will see that when we get there, which will probably be about a year and a half from now. All right. So it's going to take some time. Now, I'm not Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached, I don't know, 1,800 sermons on the book of Romans. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, but the first book I ever bought uh, from him, he's a Welsh preacher. He was a medical doctor who was called to the ministry, and he preached four sermons in the book of Ephesians on the prepositional phrase, but God. I thought, Lord, spare me. I don't know if I could take it. But it will take some time to get through this. And uh, it's so much here, so much good, so much healthy. Enough of that. So Paul tells us that, that there were a lot of hindrances and that he hadn't been sitting around, you know, uh, playing video games. Uh, he has been busy doing other things. Paul mentions what these hindrances are. But what we can add from our knowledge from other letters, from Acts, that Paul also had to deal with church problems in Antioch, Galatia, Corinth, Thessalonica, in addition to beatings, imprisonments, and that tends to tax one's time. Whatever obstacles had prevented Paul from coming to Rome, Paul now thinks that they are sufficiently cleared out of the way to enable him to head to Spain via Rome. Sadly, the events in Acts chapter 21-28 show that Paul had no idea of the many misfortunes that were about to befall him that would hinder, again, his missionary agenda and plans. He would make it to Rome several years later, only after first being mobbed, arrested, enduring a lengthy imprisonment, a trial, and surviving a shipwreck. So this man's life was no Garden of Eden. It was misery, and it was difficult, and there was lots of suffering. Uh, I can remember, you talk about having your agenda undone. I remember when I came here in 1988 to plant this church, and we moved, uh, our whole family, and I had a, I was so proud of this, I had an agenda mapped out that I thought, this is the greatest agenda you could ever have for moving to a city like Las Vegas and planting a church. And about a month here, God totally blew it up. He doesn't need my help. He's not real interested in my agenda. He's more interested in his agenda. And so I got humbled right away and just said, oh, Lord, I think I'm leaving. I don't know if I can take it. 
and uh, I came out here full of fire, and it got doused really quickly by reality. Um, I couldn't even open a bank account because the Presbyterian Church in America was paying me, and this was during the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker era, and so they assumed anybody that was doing what I was doing that looked like me was a con man, and they would not cash my checks. And I said, the Presbyterian Church has been in America longer than you've been a state. <laughs> they still didn't cash the check. So here I am trying to plant a church, looking like the biggest loser in town, can't pay my bills, can't feed my family. God's people rallied, though, and they took care of us. But it was just such an education in the ways of God, which are not our ways. But anyhow, that's a long time ago. Paul gives three reasons for his intended visit to Rome. First, his longing to be with the Romans so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Now, the words charisma, that is gift, pneumaticon, which is spirit, are normally translated spiritual gift, which they are here. Paul mentions spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12 as well as in the book of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians and even in Timothy. The spiritual gifts pertain to spiritual given abilities to serve and work among the churches in various ways. Paul here gives no indication at this point that he had a particular gift in mind that he could bestow on the Romans. Later, Paul will write that he wants the Romans to be filled with joy and peace and overflow with hope in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is part of the overall purpose of his ministry among believing Gentiles. Perhaps Paul meant no more to say that his presence among them will convey the full measure of blessing in Christ. However, spiritual gift should be more readily, uh, readily connected to the purpose of the letter itself. Paul was attempting to do with this letter what he could not do there in person. Paul cannot strengthen the believers in the personal uh, uh, in person, so he seeks to strengthen them by laying out the gospel in its theological depth and implications for living to the believers there. So it is my conviction in this passage, which is shared by many scholars, that the gift here is a spiritual gift called the gospel, Paul's gospel, which was given to him by God. And he knows that gospel will strengthen. By the way, um, there are people who hear this kind of uh, preaching and say to themselves, why did Paul want to go and preach the gospel in Rome if there are already believers there, what's the gospel got to do with the person who believes? Isn't gospel Christianity 101? Isn't the gospel the way we enter into the Christian life? Isn't the gospel something we believe and see it in our rearview mirror for the rest of eternity? No. No. The gospel is not just the gate through which you enter the Christian life. It is the pathway you walk. It is the power of God unto salvation, all three tenses. You're saved from the penalty of sin in justification. You're saved from the power of sin in sanctification. 
And this is Paul saying the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Bleeding a little into next week, spare me. But not only that, he says the gospel will ultimately deliver you from the very presence of sin altogether. And that will be when you have the greatest sense of peace, joy, happiness in life forever. When you stop sinning. Because sin robs us of so much. It steals from us our joy. It steals from us and douses, as it were, the power of God unto salvation. Here's what Paul himself said in a prayer of thanksgiving to the Colossian church. He expresses gratitude for God for the way in which the gospel had come to them, bearing fruit and growing among them. The fruit the gospel produced was faith in Christ, love for the saints, and hope laid up for you in heaven. Colossians 1.4. Paul credits the Colossian church's understanding of the grace of God in truth as the cause of their fruitfulness. This understanding was something heard initially through Paul's gospel preaching, but also learned continually through the ministry, at least in Colossae, of Epaphras. It is clear that the gospel both creates the church and matures the church. Here at Spring Meadows, we have a strong passion and commitment for the gospel preaching. Well, you may say, doesn't every church have that? And the answer to that is no, they do not. Here's how I heard it when I grew up. Um, gospel is both for believers and unbelievers. The gospel is not merely entry-level 101 stuff, but it's graduate school, postgraduate school, as well as continuing education. The only people who get the gospel are the ones who know they don't really get it most of the time. We do not preach the gospel for justification and then biblical principles for sanctification. That is the Christian life. We are not justified by the power of the gospel and sanctified by something else. We are sanctified by faith as well as our responsible participation, yes. But it's faith in what? The gospel, the power of the gospel. That's what drives us. And to be spirit-filled, in some respects, J.I. Packer said, is to be filled with the knowledge of the gospel continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul was so passionate to come there and preach the gospel to these people. And that's what he meant by spiritual gift here. So gospel pertains not just to the initial preaching, but to the entire sequence of activities that results in settled and mature churches, that is, gospelizing. And that is what he does. Now, we're coming down to the close. Uh, a further purpose for Paul's proposed visit to Rome is that you and I by may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul says, and this is true of everything in, in, in uh, the Christian life, you can learn something from everybody. You can learn something for everybody. Nobody in the church is like some elitist person that can't learn. I learn from you as I try to encourage you. You learn from me uh, as you, are, excuse me, I learn from you as you encourage me. You learn from me as I encourage you. It's not a hierarchy in which, in one respect, I have all the goods, you have nothing, and you should be grateful I'm giving them to you. No. There's a mutuality there. Paul was so humble, 
so realistic about who he was, so enthralled with the grace of God that he recognized this community had much to show him and much to teach him. And as I tell people, uh, my two church planting experiences uh, in the PCA uh, taught me far more than any contribution I made uh, to what was going on. But Paul's inter uh, intended purpose to visit Rome is that in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among other Gentiles. Rome was filled with Greeks. It was filled, and by the way, the Greeks are the educated, sophisticated ones. By the way, Rome borrowed a lot, a ton, from the Greeks. Uh, they, uh, what do you call that when you take somebody else's cultural appropriation? They appropriated just about everything Greek. Uh, the Greeks were the, were the thinkers in the crowd, and there were some smart people in Rome who used it in terms of government. But Paul wanted to come there, and it was filled with barbarians, the civilized, the brutish, the wise, the unlearned. These are the people to whom Paul was obligated as part of his gospel call, that is why he is so eager to preach the gospel in Rome. I was once uh, being shown uh, a city to plant a church in. I had planted a church here. I planted a church in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. And then I came, was considering looking at another one, and we were riding around in a particular city, I won't say where, and we were riding around with a missions director, and I won't say who. But as soon as we pulled up in this really nice neighborhood, really swanky homes, everything was, you know, uh, quite a zip code to live in, and we rode through the streets, and he looked at me and said, this is Presbyterian country. And I looked at him and I almost died inside. I said, they wouldn't even let me in a neighborhood like this where I grew up. And you're telling me that this is the only kind of people Presbyterian appeals to? Uh, I didn't say anything I probably should have uh, because I kind of was interested in looking at other opportunities and he seemed to be the guy that was going to show them to you. And I didn't think a rebuke at that moment was wise for my own self-interest, as you can see. But the point is, there's nobody outside the range of the gospel. Often the very people who you think may be a little beneath you are the ones most anxious, ready, and willing to hear it. What are we doing to reach out to people like barbarians here at Spring Meadows? How are we doing that? How are we encouraging those people, making opportunities to reach them and, and preach the gospel to them. Well, this is Paul's reason for wanting to come to Rome. And he's just fired up about it because he sees it as a very strategic and yet fertile area for the gospel of Christ. Uh, one last story and I'll quit. My wife uh, was... Uh, back when we first moved here and you know I'm not I'm not we got a lot of publicity about coming here to this particular city because everybody thinks this is sin city uh, there are three bad places uh, Sodom Gomorrah and Las Vegas uh, and why you know so my wife was at a, a table at a ladies event 
And she was, the people here were so excited we were here, they made her this badge, and it was kind of a, a glitzy, neon kind of flashing badge for Las Vegas. And she, she sits down for dinner at this table, and some woman, maybe from the South, I don't know, but she looked at Pam and she said, oh, honey, Las Vegas. She said, why would we want a church there? I said, what'd you do? She said, I didn't do anything. She said, I just was spellbound that anybody would say that. This is exactly where we need to be. If you moved here and you, you hate being here, wake up. You're here, not for your own comfort. You're here to get the gospel to other people. This is a fertile area. So many people, you see it every day, living their lives without God, without hope in this world. And we need to wake up and see how we can get opportunities to share the gospel with them. The least, the last, the lame, the lepers are the people Christ came to save. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for uh, the Apostle Paul and what you have done in him and through him to uh, even affect us here today in 2023 in Las Vegas, Nevada. And so we pray this word would come home to us and bear fruit. And now as we continue to worship, may we give his people who are motivated by a love and a sense of overwhelming gratitude for all the gifts you have given us, especially the gift of faith and repentance, especially the gift of your grace and gospel. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.